from PRN, this is Chandler Davis. Well, anyways, I appreciate you sitting down with me, but we can kind of go ahead and get right into it, Dr. Z. Um, but can you first kind of introduce who you are and um, just let the listeners know who you are for those that don't know? Sure. I'm sure most of you already know me, Dr. Zigolinski, otherwise known as Dr. Z, who harasses you with pharmacology on a yearly basis. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, well, I, I kind of wanted to sit down with you and have a lot more uh, in-depth conversation about the COVID vaccines. I know that there's a lot of information out there, um, but a lot of it we don't really know about. So it's nice to be able to um, put it all together in a, a good format to be able to listen to. But uh, I just wanted to hear your input and kind of the information you are uh, you know about uh, the current vaccines that are on the market right now. Okay. Um, I think we'll start out by just briefly going over what the usual path to a vaccine development. Sure, that works. That works. And it's usually five to 10 years. Actually, some references say 10 to 15, but many are five to 10. So you have to have that preclinical stage where it's in vitro, in vivo, maybe in animals, where you identify a target and you do your long-term toxicity studies, which are two years, two species. Then we have stage one. So you're looking at a very small number of people and you're looking only at adverse events and toxicity. Now we saw that in the mRNA vaccines um, back in, uh, I think some were done in June and some were done in September. I think uh, Pfizer was done in June, Moderna maybe September. So small number of people, all you're looking for is adverse events and toxicity. Now then, under normal circumstances, you would go to stage two. So you increase your subjects from maybe 10 up to eh, maybe a couple of hundred. And here you're going to look at different dosing strategies, okay? Uh, Maybe a bit of efficacy and a little bit more on toxicity. We never did stage two in any of these vaccines that we're going to talk about. Stage three, you increase it to thousands or more. Okay. Now we kind of merge stages two and three for this. And then stage four is actually anything on the market. We're in stage four now, and that's post-marketing surveillance. So there has to be a lot of due diligence done in surveillance at this time. Now manufacturer with actually physically making the vaccines generally ramps up very slowly. It starts in phases two and three and doesn't get big until the end of phase three. Now, we contributed a lot of government money to ramp up manufacture right away as soon as we thought it was going to work. So we basically took a gamble and probably a a very good gamble uh, on this one. So federal funding went into a lot of this. uh, And again, risk on investment. Now, for the emergency use authorization or EUA, All the FDA requires is short-term safety and efficacy studies, which were those those ones that we saw being done. And for this vaccine, they wanted an efficacy of at least 50%. And the FDA would also have approved the EUA if they could show efficacy via a surrogate marker. Now, we did use surrogate markers, but we used actual incidence of disease. Because if you remember back to clinical trials, surrogate markers are only as good as your surrogate marker. 
and uh, we didn't really have a lot of good ones, but we have been using antibody production and T cell immunoreactivity. Now, the reason both of those are important is if you just measured antibodies and all it did was stimulate B cell antibodies and you didn't have a T cell response, you could have a vaccine that caused uh, antibody induced enhancement of disease. That was really a big, a big issue. So hence the T cell response was measured. Now it's kind of difficult to measure a T cell response, but it can be done, it just takes a lot of time. And we did do it. And we did see B and T cell responses with the vaccines that are on market. So the FDA position says, okay, this EU, in order to get an EUA, you have to demonstrate that the benefits clearly outweigh the risks. And in this case, that was true. All right, for both of the vaccines that we have on the market now. So, so that's a good thing. What we were lacking is a lot of long-term toxicity uh, studies in animals. Now, Moderna had some because when Moderna originally started out, they were trying to make use mRNA in curing cancer and treatment of cancer. So they did have uh, some long-term efficacy, enough to allow the FDA to think, okay, this is okay, but we still have to perform our post-marketing surveillance. Just as like, you know, say some of the multiple sclerosis drugs came out and they were released under emergency use authorization. But in that case, every patient receiving them had to be monitored. And they did come, uh, come up with some issues of uh, cerebral infection and things like that. Mm -hmm. But Post-marketing surveillance is really our key here. We need to be doing that. And what bothers me is that I, I don't think we all are uh, all the time. Right. That goes into kind of the hands of the physicians and the clinical. Not really. Uh, I'll discuss that in a little bit. The sure, CDC, absolutely. CDC has a system set up for that. Problem is not everybody's following it. So mm -hmm. that's, that's just a bone of contention that I have. So what types of vaccines do we have? Well, we got to look at what the target is, and we've decided that the spike protein is the target. It's the first protein on the virus that the immune system is going to come in contact with, so that's good. It's also going to be this, the, the part of the virus that's going to be subject to the most genetic change that can evade our immune system, as we're starting to see now most variable in the strain changes. So that's the downside. But right now we have on the market, well, not on the market. The first one is not on the market yet. It's in clinical trials in the US. It's been through clinical trials in Australia and Great Britain, I believe. And that's from Novavax. Right. Uh, Novavax just takes the viral spike proteins, chops them up, puts them in a soup, adds an adjuvant, and their adjuvant is proprietary that will help it get um, into the cell, uh, well, not into the cell, but generate an immune response. And uh, the efficacy in the UK and Australia was about 89%. Okay, so that's really what we're looking at. Um, less with the variants, that one appeared to be more susceptible to the variants that are emerging. It's not yet approved in the United States. The clinical trials just started in January. I actually volunteered for the Novavax clinical trial, because I like that platform of vaccine production. And um, 
I spoke to them in January and I said, look, when do you expect to come out with a product? And the earliest they felt would be available would be June or July. And I'm like, okay, let's, I'm 65. My husband's 72. Let's, let's make a plan B. Okay. But I, I did like that vaccine. We have a lot of toxicity data on this platform. We know that platform is safe, right? We have no, no, no real doubts about that. We know that it gives a B and a very robust T-cell response. I think from what I've seen, the Novavax T-cell response was one of the highest, okay? But mm. again, it's not yet on the market. And the efficacy in Australia and the UK was about 89%. Is that a significant difference from what we have on the market now? I don't know. Maybe, but not much. Now, what we do have on the market in the U.S. is our two mRNA vaccines, one from Moderna, one from Pfizer. So in this case, you're injecting the mRNA for the spike protein, messenger RNA. So, you know, a lot of people say, oh, what I hear in Southwest Virginia, this is going to change my DNA. No, it's not. And you need to be able to explain that to people because even some of the diehards out here will understand that when you explain it to them. Right. So the mRNA makes the protein, and then you have the immune response to the protein. The plus side, this works great. We've got some long-term toxicity studies, at least from Moderna. Um, it was also the vaccine of choice that was being developed for both SARS and MERS. So we've got a lot of long-term data from that, hmm. uh, which is a good thing, right. which actually helped it go through. Now, we see that there are some allergic responses to these two. They're not over the 1%. You know, it's only, the only thing you hear about in the news is the allergic responses, and they're very, very small. Um, and everybody says, oh, the vaccines contain polyethylene glycol. Yes, it's antifreeze. But if you pick up a, a, a bottle of Robitussin, cough syrup, any liquids, a lot of the asthma medications, all of them have PEG in low amounts. And it's there to just keep things more soluble. So I highly doubt the allergic reaction is to PEG. Both vaccines do have a coating around the mRNA that's made of lipid nanoparticles. So these nanoparticles help the vaccine adhere to the cell and help deliver the payload into the cell. Now, one of the nanoparticles they were using is a docosahexanoic acid that is very similar to a lipid in shrimp, okay? So hence, people with shellfish allergies, not everybody with a shellfish allergy has a problem with it. Sorry, I had to dismiss something. Oh, you're fine. Uh, but, but it can be. Do you know, just sorry to interrupt, but do you know what kind of reaction someone might be having if they uh, do have one of those shellfish allergies? Usually it's an aphylaxis. Okay. An aphylactic reaction, which is why people have to wait 15 minutes after that vaccine. Right. Could right. It occur later than that? Yeah, it can. But most of it is, is treated with epi, can be treated with epi in the emergency room, things like that. So shellfish allergy is not necessarily a rule out, but forgetting the vaccine, but it's a cautionary measure in, hmm. in some patients. Now, there's also a company called CureVac in Germany that is also making another RNA, mRNA vaccine, uh, and that's not out yet. They're using a different coding. And from what I understand, they're trying not to use just one mRNA. They're looking at mRNA of the variants, 
one of the um, downsides to the mRNA is your body is in essence making not many polyclonal antibodies. It's probably making some, but but not a whole whole heck of a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, our third platform out is the DNA platforms. This uses an adenovirus vector inactivated to deliver the payload, which is DNA, to the cell. So it's going to infect your cell's DNA and manufacture the viral sp- protein that way. Its efficacy has been between 80 and 89%. I don't like that one very much uh, because I think that actually delivers a payload to the DNA and you don't know what it's going to do when it sits there for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a lot of junk DNA hanging around, but we don't know a lot about that. We don't have any. I could not find a single bit of long-term tox data on this. Okay, And some of these are actually... Um, going to be intranasal or they're trying to make them intranasal, uh, which is kind of on the good side. It's good because it goes into all the immune cells that you have in your nasal passages. The downside is the olfactory neurons in the nose project directly to the brain. So you could transmit it right Mm. through. So I'm not really wild about that one for those reasons. Uh, I'm not wild about it at all. And just to to take a second, for those who don't know, can you go ahead and kind of explain the differences on why uh, your concerns between the DNA vaccine versus the mRNA vaccine um, and why those two um, safety profiles might be different? The mRNA never gets into the nucleus. It goes directly to your cell's protein synthesis machinery and gets transcribed as normal mRNA into a protein, and that protein is the viral spike protein. It's degraded very rapidly. Mm. Okay, probably within 24 hours, the mRNA in those vaccines is gone. The DNA vaccines go directly to the nucleus and go into insert into the DNA. And that's why I'm not comfortable with that insertion. There's no way that I can see to get rid of it once it's in there. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe there are some stop codons that, that keep it from, from making mRNA to go out into the nucleus to make protein. But still, that one is appears to be a more direct alteration of the DNA, and I'm not in favor of that because we don't have a lot of safety data on that. Mm-hmm. We don't know if that how safe that is. Are both of these models novel to new, or uh, with regards to vaccine creation, are both of them, like I know the mRNA is quite novel, but is the uh, adenovirus DNA vaccine uh, a novel creation as well? Adenovirus to, um, to put in a lot of anti-cancer d- genes. We've used inactivated adenovirus to, I, I believe measles uses something like that. Um, but still, this one has a more definitive change to the DNA than our our older vaccines do. And um, again, long-term safety and toxicity is something that's missing there. Neither of those DNAs are on the market in the United States. Um, I believe it was Johnson & Johnson that applied for uh, an EUA. It's scheduled to come up, I believe, sometime in March. Um the efficacy is very low on that one mm-hmm. and it has no efficacy to either the recently developed South African strain or the recently developed UK strain. So 
it may get approved, but how much use it's going to have, I doubt much of any. Now, I'm going to mention this fourth platform. It's being developed in India by a firm called Codagenics. This gives an attenuated virus, okay? So they've taken the virus, they've altered some of the gene sequences of the virus to make it non-reproductive, okay? And thereby inactivate the virus. So in that case, they will give you a vaccine of inactivated virus. It'll go through one round in your cells, make the antibodies, and, and then supposedly it will quit. It supposedly got a very, very high efficacy. Um, and it exposes the immune system to more than just one viral protein. So this one is not just focused on the spike protein. Because remember, the cells are making the virus for one round. Okay. So you got a more robust immune response in terms of what your body is making the immune response for. I think this is one to watch. It's, I'm going to guess that it's likely going to be more effective against the variants because you're making antibodies to several components of the virus. Again, long-term efficacy, long-term toxicity, and long-term side effects are going to be a question with this. Right, but this is something that's up and coming that kind of caught my interest because it causes more of a polyclonal antibody response to the virus, which means it could take care of variants a little bit better. Okay, But we've been using the term efficacy a lot. If we want to look at the hard definition, efficacy is the percentage in risk reduction in the vaccinated population compared to the placebo. Okay, great measure. Now, in both Moderna and Pfizer, and I spent a long time trying to figure out whether they did this, and finally I found it on clinicaltrials.gov. The participants in the clinical trial, first, the clinical trial was done at medical centers, academic medical centers. All the participants, whether they got placebo or a vaccine, were given sheets on wearing masks, personal protective equipment, and social distancing. Now, you would figure that these people that participated in the clinical trials are probably very astute in that. At least they were as astute as the general population, okay? So these people, placebo and vaccinated, still went out and displayed the behavioral characteristics that were necessary to kind of sort of quelch the virus a little bit. Now, if you look at the Moderna study, and I took these numbers from Moderna, the incidence of the disease in the placebo group, there are 172 cases, 35,000 people approximately in placebo. The incidence of disease was 0.5%. 0.5%. Now, if you take yesterday's numbers and look at the incidence of disease in the United States, we had about 27.3 million cases in the United States since it began. We had, we had 327 million approximately in the United States. So the incidence in the general population of the United States was 8%, which means that in this study, is it possible that people being astute at mask wearing, social distancing, et cetera, change that incidence of disease down to 0.5%? It sure is, mm -hmm. okay, which gives a lot of credence to the basic PPE directions we've been given. Now, 
So behavioral modification reduces the incidence. Now, if you look at the group that got the vaccine, 11 out of 35,000 got the disease. So the Moderna vaccine further reduced that incidence to 0.01%, right? Which is a substantial increase. But what can you really say about vaccine efficacy? The only thing you can really say, it's 95% under specific behavioral conditions. 95% only under specific behavioral conditions. Question is, what happens when we go back to normal? We've never had a flu shot that's been more than 70% effective. I predict when we go back to normal, it'll have approximately the same efficacy unless we change something in the vaccine. But, you know, we're talking to the general public and say, oh, it's 95% effective. No, it's not. It's 95% effective under these behavioral conditions. Now, here's another example of how metrics can be faulty. Each year, the flu vaccine is between 50 and 70% effective. This year, we had almost no cases of flu. There's like nothing out there. Why? Because of all the PPEs being worn. So if we actually measured the efficacy of the flu vaccine this year, it would clock out at 90 to 95%. And we know that's not true. Hmm. Yeah, that's an important distinction to make. This is, this is a, it's very important. Because, you know, once the vaccines do roll out, people are going to go out thinking it's fine and we're going to see the efficacy, I think, come down. Because when the masks and the distancing stop, you still have this problem. Personally, I think we don't focus on treatment enough, but that's, you know, that's another story. So, yeah, the, look what would have happened if we measured the flu vaccine under today's conditions. Okay, So efficacy has a lot of prevailing conditions that can be attached to it that are very, very important when, when, when you look at that. Um, again, my guess, they'll be 50 to 70% efficacious at best. Now, how about our first and second doses? Well, the clinical trials for Moderna and Pfizer and the ones in progress for Novavax are all using two doses. How did they arrive at two? There was no phase two of the clinical trial where they looked at dosing. They took their best guess, their best guess. And that's okay, because that's what you have to do in an emergency. But they took their best guess. Was this necessary? Who knows? We don't know. Um, You got both B B and a T cell response after the first dose, so that was good. First doses measured both of these responses, and they were reasonable. Moderna has reported to the FDA after their first shot, the efficacy in 60 and under was was 80%, which is really relatively good. And interestingly enough, 60 and over, the efficacy was up. It was 86%, which kind of defies our thinking that the older people have a less active immune system. Uh, But they stayed. They just did this for now. The sample size was extremely small. They do not recommend prolonging or not doing the second dose. Basically, they're saying all bets are off with efficacy if you do that. And they're right in saying that. The experiment they conducted were under these conditions and we can't make assumptions. Everybody, well, first dose will be fine. 
What's your basis for that assumption? That's been, I think, the problem in a lot of this with COVID. We're making too many assumptions and we have no evidence. And it's it's rampant and, and it annoys me. So that's why I go back. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's what Moderna reported. But again, they say our sample size is too small. Not enough people got ill in that time period between the first and second shot. Now, some sources are out there spouting that four to six weeks is perfect timing for a second shot. You can wait that long. This is false. The CD says you can extend it to four weeks only in rare cases when there is a vaccine shortage. Don't do it. Give it, give your second shot as close in timing as you possibly can within maybe a few days to a week. And the uh, both Moderna and Pfizer uh, support that. They say you wait after, all bets are off. And they're right in saying that because we have no evidence. Even in Britain, where they were giving the first dose, uh, waiting to get everybody inoculated before they gave the second dose, it's not working very well. So if you follow the studies coming from the UK, uh, it's saying don't do that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, for the first dose, most people have very little response. I had none. Okay. I don't know anybody that had a response at the first dose. And I figured, okay, well, I'm going to be fine for the second dose because if you look at the clinical trials, about 50% of the people have the fever, the aches, and the basic flu-like symptoms. So I'm going to be fine. Wrong. About 14 hours after I got my second dose, which is the time it would take for mRNA to make a protein and have that protein be secreted. Hmm. I was running a fever and I felt like crap. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To date, if you want to do Dr. Z's poll, everybody I have spoken to, and it's probably over 60 now, has had a negative response, has been flat on their back after about a day after the second dose. I know of one person that hasn't been, and that's my husband. He just walked around fine, you know. So yeah, I would I would say I would I would agree with that. I would say most of the people that I've talked to, at least seventy percent or maybe fifty percent of the people that after the second dose had a reaction, though it might not have been long uh, compared to the first dose, it wasn't even close. And the question is, right? Well, do we really need this? Well, it results in more antibodies and more T cells. That we do know. The T-cell immunity and the antibody resistance is upped quite substantially, particularly in the category of the T-cells. With regards to the second dose. Yes. Yeah. So I think, yes, it probably uh, is necessary unless somebody does a study to show that it's not. Mm -hmm. And we don't have any of that evidence yet. Right. So now the biggest thing we're facing is the different strains. Currently, there's four strains. The original the UK, the South African, and now there is a California variant. Okay. They spread quicker. We don't know if they give you a more serious disease. Some think the South African strain may, but you have to look at how was PPE and distancing, et cetera, followed in in that area. That's like an underlying thing that you always have to consider. Now, will there be another booster? Moderna and Pfizer are working on them now. Now, the Moderna shot works 
um, I think the efficacy drops to maybe 89 for the UK strain. Uh, the California strain it appears to be working on, they both have a reduced efficacy for the South African strain. Hmm. Uh, with Pfizer showing a little bit more, but the numbers aren't good enough to tell yet. Um, so they're, they're both working on a booster. We'll probably have a booster. What we need to remember is this is a cold virus. In all of our years, we've never had a vaccine for a cold virus because things mutate too quickly and you can't get one, okay? Now, although this isn't exactly like the cold virus, we're looking at something in the same family. So I would predict that, yeah, we're going to have boosters yearly if this takes. You know, I, and again, like I said, I wish we would focus more on treatment. We have some good treatments uh, out there, yet I see a rising death rate every day. And I'm like, why isn't everybody using the treatments? And we know that not everybody is using the available treatments, which is kind of pitiful. But, um, you know, we're going to have to realize that the more this virus goes unchecked, and it's going to happen, the more it's going to mutate. Now, we had Dr. Fauci reporting back in March or April that the virus doesn't mutate much. Now, you can log on to a website, it's called nextstrain.org, that has recorded all the mutations in COVID, everything, hmm. not just spike protein, everything. This virus has been mutating like crazy since April. Okay, they've got buckets of them. Now, the most important ones were in the spike proteins, and that's the ones that we're seeing being important now. But, you know, this is what I mean. We have to look at when somebody says something, what's your substantiation for that? You know, MERS probably mutated itself out of being a serious disease for us, luckily. Could this do the same thing? Well, I certainly do hope so. That's probably what happened with the 1918 flu also, okay? Right. When you think of, of mutations when it comes to virus, I know that the thing that comes to my mind is the antigen, antigenic shift and then the drift. Uh, can you go into a little bit about that and if that is related to the COVID vaccine or excuse me, COVID virus? Because I know that the flu um, is very different in the way that its structure is set up compared to COVID, but we often compare those. If you could just go a little bit into that, that would be awesome. Yeah, it, it, it's probably a reasonable comparison because we don't have anything to compare it with. And I can say that I really can't say much. Nextstrain.org has reported a lot of drift. And, and this is occurring in, in areas actually within the virus itself that don't relate to the spike protein or the surface proteins. There's been some changes in the surface protein. But here is the real problem. We are not watching the strain shifts and drift. The CDC has actually admitted a, a few days ago that they've been woefully behind in monitoring sequence changes in the virus. The UK's probably got the best system for that because they've been doing a lot of it. But all we could say is at this point is mm, we're not sure. This is a different virus. So I wouldn't venture to say anything unless we look. And we have to look. Right. You have to look and we're not mm -hmm. hopefully now we are, but um, you know, we're not going to, there's been so much, I, I'm kind of very frustrated with science because a lot of the things that should have been done, you know, there is a procedure on file that was updated in 1999, I believe for what to do in the event of um, 
a pandemic occurring. We haven't followed a single procedure that's been on that list. Nothing. <laughs> so it, it, it annoys me that science has been so kind of lack, lackadaisical. But I predict if it hangs around, we're going to have a yearly booster. And again, I say the actual uh, efficacy without masks and stuff is probably going to be around 70%. Right. You know, our key to getting out of this is, yes, focusing on vaccine, but also focusing on, on, on the treatments. You know, we have good monoclonal antibody treatments. I understand they're out there. I understand they're in a lot of the hospitals. Nobody's using them. And, you know, I predict that what would be helpful if this does hang around is to set up infusion clinics because the, the antibodies have to be infused. You test positive, you have pre-existing conditions, you're over a certain age, boom, go to the infusion tent and get an infusion. Seems very logical to me. Mm -hmm. And we're not even looking at this stuff. And we see a death rate that's, well, okay, we... The cases in the United States are coming down. I think we were like, uh, we were below 100,000 yesterday. I think we were 112,000 today. And that's a big drop because we were in the 250 to 350 to 400,000 range a, a while back. Uh, but still, you know, I, I predict, I think the drop in cases is probably because of the weather. Because the weather across the entire states has been bad. And mm. People aren't going out and going anywhere. But, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Right. We're not going to really see a change in the vac from the vaccine for a little while yet. We have enough people vaccinated. Right. I wanted to take a second to go back to um, our conversation that we were having about uh, some of the safety and efficacy. Um, one of the topics I think gets brought up a lot, especially amongst my generation, especially younger women, is the population of childbearing uh, aged women and then uh, and during pregnancy. And I've done a little bit of research on it, but I kind of want to hear your thoughts on the, the vaccine and whether there's been any proven evidence to state that you should get it in that population um, or there not. Is, there, there is no proven evidence showing that. Um, it's recommended. Do I necessarily think it would affect the fetus? Well, you know, you're looking at, given that major inflammatory response that you see after the second vaccine, I, I would have questions of that. And um, in my own personal opinion, I would kind of, I think, avoid it. Mm -hmm. um, I, in my research, I think one of the uh, interesting things that's not brought up, or at least um, people don't really understand, and this kind of goes into the segue of stage four clinical trials, is that there are plenty and plenty of, of women that are not currently pregnant, ultimately get the vaccine and do become pregnant, whether that was intentional or not. Um, and I think if I'm not mistaken, there's a program set up to monitor those patients, uh, at least in the clinical trials that become pregnant. Yes. Um, so just for anyone listening, that, that is, there is some, um, at least studies being done on it, but it might not be to the full extent that people expect. Now, your likelihood being of childbearing age and say you get pregnant a year down the road and you haven't had any vaccine in that time or anything like that, the mRNA in that vaccine goes away. It's degraded. It's gone within 48, 72 hours after you get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the only thing left is your memory T cells and your B cells. Could there be something in the fetus that reacts with those 
antigens? It's possible, mm-hmm. but I, I, I don't think so. Now, again, long-term safety and toxicity in pregnant animals has not been done for either of these. Okay. At least I can't find it. Right. Right. Now this idea of post-marketing surveillance, this is going to be key right now. We are all in stage four of a clinical trial. We, we, we are participants. Now the EUAs mandate that the vaccine side effects, et cetera, be monitored after use begins. It's critical. You have to, most of it's being monitored rather through a program called VSAFE. If you Google dash VSAFE, you will come up with it and you should register for that program if you get the vaccine. It looks at side effects for about two weeks and it questions you about them. Uh, and I believe it has some questions on pregnancy. For I was going to say, I believe that's the, the same program that I was mentioning before. Yeah. And Everybody that gives a vaccine that 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 puts a jab at an arm should be referring that person to this program. And I'm kind of frustrated because it's not happening. Um, It looks at your side effects for two weeks after the vaccine and then monthly thereafter. And it'll ping you uh, on your cell phone and say, could you please report? This is like really critical. It's really critical that everybody who gets a vaccine participate in this. Otherwise, we're never going to know. And, you know, sometimes it takes 10 million to see a particular side effect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, given the population of the world, that side effect could still be huge, even though it occurs one in 5 million or one in 10 million. So we really need to take care of that. So I would urge uh, all of the students and everyone you know that's getting a vaccine to get onto that VSAFE and start reporting. Because that's it's basically mandated by law if you're giving out the vaccine. We're not hearing a lot about that, but you, you really should be doing that. That's um, something very important. Right. So a couple of final words on weeding through the misinformation. We do not have a lot of data on COVID. We think it came from a bat through a pangolin, maybe, maybe not. You know, there are publications from the Wuhan lab. Um, It was from the uh, PhD that no one can find anymore. Back in 2015 and 2016, she actually published stuff on um, altering the genetic sequence of this virus. Uh, And I remember this distinctly because at that time, it was published in Science Magazine. It was a subject of big controversy. You know, people were writing letters to the other, we shouldn't be doing this, and we probably shouldn't have. Um, So there's a lot of questions that are unanswered about how this vaccine has jumped the species, has worked its way through, and what it's going to do next, okay? Think about, and the misinformation to the public is really bad. And as medical professionals, You really need to think your own logic when somebody's saying something to you. For example, last March, we were told, oh, the general public was told, oh, wearing masks isn't going to help you. And I sat there and I said, what are they saying? (laughs) Because, yes, even a surgical mask will help. And, you know, unfortunately, five, six months down the road, oh, yeah, wear masks. Okay. Now, I understand that. The reason was to preserve PPE 
for medical professionals. And, and, you know, because of what we work with in my lab, I generally have a, a year's worth of supply of PPEs. And I ended up giving it to a lot of the hospitals in the area early on in, in COVID. But, but, you know, you could have said to the general public, we need to conserve this type of mask for hospital workers. You should wear this. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just a simple surgical mask, a simple surgical mask has about a 40% efficacy on its own of blocking the virus. If two people wear the sur- surgical mask, the one that's infected, and the one that's not, you can get up to 90% efficacy. Wake Forest did a lot of these studies. So did Rocky Mountain Labs in, in Colorado. So when somebody says something to you, you need to ask, where are you getting that information? Because mm-hmm. one of the other biggest problems is the preprint servers. They're putting stuff out in the news from preprint servers, and I look at it every morning, and it's a subject for labs. Yesterday morning, there was a big article in the New York Times and somewhere else that somebody in a preprint server said that using a compound called Thapsigargan can cure COVID. And I sat there, and I know some of you have worked in my lab. So we have a lot of Thapsigargan. Thapsigargan is highly toxic. What Thapsigargan does is it takes the intracellular calcium stores and dumps them. Hmm. And you can't get them back. That kills things. Okay. <laughs> and somebody actually published this and the New York Times picked it up from a preprint server. And you, you need to watch out what's coming out on those preprint servers. Go look at the article if you're that interested, but certainly don't believe it. You know, we have information out there saying that it's not spread on surfaces. Well, Rocky Mountain Labs, who is basically the um, the guru on this type of thing, did experiments where they had aerosols and they let the aerosols settle on the surface. And then they swabbed the surface. And yes, they found viral particles. But the key is when you swab that surface and you pick up those viral, viral particles and you put it in a culture of cells, does it replicate and cause the disease? And yes, in many cases, it does. So when they say, you know, it survives three days on cardboard, they're right. Mm-hmm. You know, we have others saying, oh, no, it doesn't. And, and sunlight kills it. Well, sunlight does happen to kill it. But, um, you know, you have 15 different papers. And the thing is, who did it right? And you always have to be cognizant of that and say, where is this information coming from? Mm-hmm. Okay. Who said this? And is it a preprint server? And with Thapsigargan, well, you could have just Googled Thapsigargan and, you know, it's been a toxin in a plant that lives in the uh, Middle Eastern desert for a long time. And we all know that it's a toxin. It's a nasty toxin. We, mm-hmm. we use a lot of PPE in the lab when we work with that. So, you know, you have to, unfortunately, this is a time where everybody says anything, they put it on a preprint server and, it gets out in the news and people say it's fine. And you gotta, as a medical professional say, now, wait a minute, you might've read that in the newspaper, but that's the newspaper, you know, the Washington post, the New York times and ABC news are not scientific publications. Right. So we always have to remember that particularly with these vaccines. Yeah. I think this is an interesting time for medical students to really, uh, practice the um, 
just like the, the, the ability to go through scientific papers because of how important it, it is in general, but especially now it's more important now than ever to not just go through scientific papers, but to uh, approach a scientific paper with a healthy sense of criticism and skepticism to be able to read through it and really dig out what it means. Um, because even once you dig into some of the papers that maybe an article might be referencing, the paper, the abstract, look great, the abstract looks great, and then you get into the methods and the results and they don't look that great. Um, but the article that is maybe in the mainstream news uh, lifts up the paper to be a very sig uh, significant scientific discovery. Usually once it gets to publication, say, you know, it's made it to the New England Journal of Medicine. I know Moderna and Pfizer both published their studies there. Um, it's generally gone through a decent amount of, mm -hmm. of review. But even then, when I went to look at and, and I said, okay, how were masks, PPEs, et cetera, used in both the Moderna and Pfizer studies? I had to dig for that. I actually went to clinicaltrials.gov, logged on and got the methodology for the clinical trial. And that's how I found that out. Hmm. Now, you know, as a, med a, a, as a clinician, you're not going to be able to do that, but you should be able to think, all right, what are the mitigating factors here? Why do we suddenly have a vaccine that's 95% efficacious for something like this? And I think a lot of it has to do with the behavioral aspect, PPEs, the social distancing. Right. Um, this kind of is a good segue to, I didn't know if you had any recommendations for a lot of the listeners or students that really want to read more about whether it be the, the vaccines or the virus in general. Um, I know there's, you mentioned like the New England Journal of Medicine and such that we have access to, but uh, any kind of resources that they might be able I'll to send you, uh, I'll send you a list of four to get start started with. I'll send you an email on that yeah. shortly. Even if and there's interesting papers that um, you've come across that students might enjoy reading or at least digging yeah. through. Um, it, this is a great time, you're, education-wise, because you're going to get experience that's going to come up time and time again, unfortunately, in the future, just because of the way things are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I saw an article recently that they had um, some new types of viruses affecting chimpanzees, and they were very concerned that chimpanzee virus will jump to a human very, very easily. And it's like, okay, we're going to be fighting this for the next forever. Maybe. Mm -hmm. And we have to realize that and, and, and get, you know, get our act together. And I think as future clinicians, it gives you the ability to start thinking about that. Right. Um, one of the last questions I had um, to kind of wrap things up, uh, it's kind of a random question, but I wanted to include it in here because I know a lot of people have been thinking about it. And I know it's been on my mind recently was, uh, the recommendation for the use of antipyretics in um, uh, right after immunization, or better yet, even I mean, it could be in clinical illness or after um, a vaccine is given. Uh, you know, I've read some um, articles and op-ed piece, and I know that there's been some history of some uh, papers released showing uh, benefit to avoiding something like acetaminophen to reduce fevers when it comes to building an immune response. I just kind of want to hear your thoughts about it. Uh, personally, 
I, I don't find any of that research very compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, because the antipyretics don't reduce the fever all that well. It'll take it down from, say, maybe 100 and 201, not necessarily with the COVID vaccine, but to, to 100. And, you know, when you get much over 100, you're damaging other areas. You can damage the brain. You can damage kidneys. You can damage all other areas. So to expect to reduce the fever completely, no, I don't think you should load up on, on them like that. But I don't think it really affects. I, I don't find the evidence to, to see that it really affects it all that much. Now, um, you know, there's been saying, oh, a fever is a good thing. All right. Yeah, a, a small fever is. The reason your body raises the temperature is to kill the invading organism. Because mm-hmm. a lot of um, microbes can't survive when body temperature goes up. It, mm-hmm. it, it helps kill the microbe. Um, so for, for a mild fever, maybe not, depending on how bad you felt. I used um, both Tylenol and Ibuprofen um, when I got the fever after I had the COVID shot. Neither of them worked. Neither mm-hmm. of them worked. I still had the fever and it still was the same. It did, it, it, 24 hours later, which is obviously the time it took to complete, to, to, to clear the antibodies and get rid of the mRNA. 24 hours later, it shut off like a timer. So I think, um, and, and if you look at how these antipyretics work, how do they work? They inhibit synthesis of certain prostaglandins. Okay. That's not a totally large part of the immune response. Hmm. If you inhibit prostaglandin synthesis, you're still making leukotrienes and you're still making other arachidonic acid metabolites. So how is inhibition of prostaglandin synthesis affecting the immune response? I don't think very much. Hmm. No, I think that's some really good points and, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, you got to say, what are the antipyretics doing? They're inhibiting prostaglandin synthesis. Okay, acetaminophen's a little bit different, but it's not a very effective uh, fever reducer. Right, it inhibits synthesis at at the peripheral sites. Right. Yeah, I figured it would be an interesting topic of conversation, a rele- relevant one. I think that's come up recently, but. Yeah, you know, if if a child or an adult is running a fever of one hundred and one. Clearly, you need an antipyretic. Mm-hmm. All right. Particularly if it lasts for a while. Right. But uh, no, I don't. I, I, I don't necessarily. I looked at some of that data yesterday. I didn't find that really compelling. I think they missed the point of how the NSAIDs and acetaminophen, acetaminophen work. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great point. Um well, I don't think I have any other questions. I didn't know if you had anything else that you wanted to bring up. No, I just want to remind you all, with, if if something is said to you, what is the evidence? Where did the evidence come from? Where was it published? And who said it? Not just New York Post, New Washington Post, New York Times. Just forget it. You right. know, and unfortunately, right now, we have a lot of... 
unsubstantiated evidence out there. Mm -hmm. Unsubstantiated evidence. I agree. Well, I appreciate you sitting down with me, Dr. Z. I know that uh, I learned a lot, at least in this conversation. I'm sure that many of the students will uh, absorb a lot of the knowledge in here, at least get them thinking about these kinds of things and uh, at least encourage them to start digging in deeper on a lot of the evidence and uh, start questioning yeah, some of the stuff that's what, out there. What I found the most compelling was that when I actually went and looked at the numbers and I saw that, my goodness, the placebo group in these trials had less disease than did the United States population. What's the difference? PPEs. Mm -hmm. So distancing. Of course, we don't want to do that forever, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I Back in April, somebody said to me, when do you think this is going to go away? And I said, it's not until maybe we have a vaccine and then maybe it'll go. And right now I'm saying, well, I don't know. Yep. We're going to have a maybe a different lifestyle after this. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been a, a big, big change. And I think kind of to finish things up, I uh, even though this has been a good learning experience for digging into deeper on why things are happening and where people's getting information. Um, but I think the historical significance, not just with COVID, but I think with the vaccine release, um, I mean, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, the normal vaccine takes anywhere from five to sometimes 15 years of release. And uh, with some of the published evidence that's coming out, although we don't know uh, enough about the long-term significance, I mean, it, I mean, it's a pretty remarkable thing. And um, if, if problems don't arise, I think people will look back at this as a pretty remarkable achievement that um, yes, it will be. And it'll be a good learning experience to to start doing our surveillance a little bit differently, maybe watching what we do when something like this arises again, maybe following the plans that are on paper <laughs> to uh, to nip things in the bud. And, mm -hmm. you know, if we follow those plans back and say. Well, well, we did start to follow, the, follow them in April and May, but if we'd continue them for just a little longer, we'd probably be in a little better shape now. Yeah. Yep. I would agree with that. But I don't think I had anything else. Um, I think okay. we can wrap things up. I, I really appreciate you coming on. And I know that a lot of students do as well. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Edward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. This episode was hosted and produced by Chandler Davis and edited by Peter Samuel. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. This is PRN.